Hello, I am Panos Kodzathanasis, and this is ASEAN Movie Pulse interviews. I am here with Adam Torres today, owner of Third Window Films. Hello, Adam. How are you? Thank you for having me on. And I, I apologize for this uh, chaotic uh, room here. I don't know how to do this mosaic thing yet. And uh, this is the only <laughs> quiet space that I've got. Uh, and it's, uh, yes, it's a bit, it's my wife's room. Okay. It's, it looks very Japanese. I can say that. But <laughs> very colorful. Okay. Yes, exactly. So to take things from the beginning, how does a man from the UK end up producing films in Japan? Well, I never really wanted to uh, or thought about getting into production myself. I thought distribution, um, because there's so many films out there being produced and so many films that have been made that haven't been distributed. So I always wanted to focus solely on distribution. But, um, you know, I've always been a fan of uh, rapid eye movies. Uh, Stefan Hall is a guy who I admire more than I think anybody else in the industry. And I've always sort of modeled the way that I've worked upon the way that he has worked. Uh, obviously, we, we do similar things with similar types of films. And he got into production with a small independent Japanese film called Underwater Love, which I helped distribute. And uh, it sort of gave me the, the idea as well to, um, to come to Japan and work on, on production. Uh, main, mainly the main point was that uh, Sono Shion had um, asked me to help uh, with one of his films, uh, The Land of Hope, because it was right after the the Fukushima disaster and it was all and it was supposed to be a bit critical of the government and he couldn't raise money within Japan so him and the people around asked uh, me because I'd worked on distributing his films uh, before so I that's what got me into sort of production and what me what moved me to Japan actually I've been here ever since mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, a bit about the history of third window how did that started third window started actually around um 2005 i believe about 17 years ago now um i had been uh i'd been living in the states in america for a while um and working at uh, like cinemas and, and and video shops i was quite young and obviously that that bringing about the the point about distribution i was working in like video shops in in america and uh you know wondering why so many films weren't being able to get out there and uh you know, the, the concept of distribution became uh, something I got really into at the time. I moved back to England in uh, around 2003. I was probably about 20 years old or so. Uh, yes, 20 years old. And um, I started interning for Tartan Films because they were obviously one of the biggest distributors of Asian films uh, in, 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 in the world at the time, uh, especially in, in the West. And uh, when I started working there, I was, you know, my image of Tartan Films as, as a sort of fan uh, beforehand was, you know, they could do no wrong and they were putting out all these great Asian films. And when I started working for them, it's sort of a bit, my, my bubble burst in a little because, you know, I was such a big fan of Asian cinema. And I thought, oh, I can talk to all these people there about Asian cinema. And, you know, it's going to be like a real big sort of cinephile, uh, group there, but it wasn't really like that at all. And, uh, the owner of the company himself was just a bit of a, uh, like just wanted to, to stick out and sort of get attention, uh, I think, uh, with, with picking the films that he loved more over the fact that he actually loved those films or uh, was really into Asian cinema. So uh, I got a bit disheartened and thought, you know, I'm going to start making my own label for getting out uh, Asian cinema and Asian cinema that is a bit different than what Tartan Films had been doing, which was the focusing on the extreme end. You know, there's the, the extreme end of Asian cinema and there's the classic end of Asian cinema, the Ozu and Kurosawa's, but there's nothing really was in, in between in, in terms of distribution. So I started uh, 
third window films in 2005 uh, um, by myself um, with that. Mm -hmm. And uh, currently you focus almost exclusively with to Japanese movies, but in the beginning of third windows, it was not like that. Your first releases were Korean movies, right? Yes, I mean, uh, you know, I've always loved uh, all, all Asian cinema. And um, I think w the time that I got into starting my own company, obviously Korean cinema was, was booming and um, Japan, not as much, I guess. Um, but I thought that, uh, that maybe Korean cinema would be sort of easier to distribute because a lot of Korean cinema has very high production values and is similar to, to American or Hollywood cinema um, in terms of making very good looking action films and making sort of very high energy uh, rom-coms and all that, obviously with their own, their own tastes. But I thought, you know, it, you know, instead of like starting off focusing on like really minor Japanese obscure cinema, it'd be a little more easier in, in my mind to, to release like sort of um, genre films a little different, like uh, Yi Chang Dong's Green Fish or, uh, or no films like uh, No Blood, No Tears and that sort of genre mishmash films, but they, uh, they didn't do very well at all. I mean, uh, they were very expensive to acquire, obviously, because, you know, the people that made them knew there was a market for them, but it was at a time in the UK distribution world that the, the market was changing a lot, especially because uh, Tartan films sort of um, uh, sort of overexploited the market with, uh, with the long-haired ghost films and, like, non-stop sort of a bit crap Asian cinema. And I think people were less willing to take a chances on Asian cinema, and therefore it was just a, the, exactly that sort of time I entered, and they just they just sold awfully. So then I moved more more into sort of the films that I was more interested in, which was like the, the sort of low budget uh, niche Japanese films. Mm -hmm. And uh, could you walk us a bit through the procedure for the, from the moment you acquire the rights for a movie until the moment you release it? Let's say, okay, don't give all your secrets away, but that's the rough idea. Well, it's changed over the years. I mean, it used to be, yes, I would just sort of acquire the rights and then go through the contractual process in obviously sorting out how the rights would be acquired. And and there's obviously loads of different ways to, to distribute a film, whether you pay a flat fee up front or you do a sort of royalty split. And, and a lot of these things also depend on who you are and, and your position in the market. I mean, uh, a lot of uh, sales agents would prefer to work with people they've known for a long time and therefore... Those people they would sell for 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 lesser amounts because they know they've got a a, a sort of solid relationship and therefore money will come back in and it's a bit different when you're a, a new face. I mean it's uh it's harder to to work with these sort of companies and it's more expensive. But but yes, follow that on. So if I get the rights, so then I'll get all the materials. I mean obviously when I started there wasn't a you know high definition. It was um you know I would get film prints or something like that and and. Uh, or, or, or obviously the uh, H or uh, Betacam masters or something like that, you know, the tapes. And you'd have to convert that into, into making, uh, if you first of all bring those films into the cinemas on, on, on 35 millimeter, or then afterwards when it came to like HD cams or DCPs and, uh, and play films in cinemas and then obviously move it on to uh, putting it out on, on DVD at the time. And now it's obviously Blu-ray or video on demand. So getting the materials ready for that, authoring the, the discs, um, uh, getting the press, uh, you know, sending them out for press releases and all that and uh, marketing the film and, uh, you know, that, that's that sort of thing, I think. There's probably a few more specifics that I could go into, but it, it would get a bit long and winded. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, regarding the criteria for the movie selection, how much do you weigh the commercial success to quality, let's say? Yeah, I mean, because I'm a, a one-man company, I don't really have to, you know, worry about you know overheads as much as like you know staff and office because I have, I have no office and I have no staff, so I can focus more on, on things that I like, and um, you know, I do try to only release films that I like. So, so that's my criteria. It doesn't really matter if it's a, a, a high-budget film, a low-budget film, or um, something with commercials, you know. Uh, you know, maybe abilities to become be, be commercial or not. You know, it's just about whether I like it, and then I try to to make it popular or I try to to sell it. I mean, obviously, films that have more commercial viability usually are more expensive to release, and in terms of the the, the, the rights uh, and and other aspects to do with the film's distribution. But um, if they're very small films, it can be sort of like a a sort of low risk, high reward uh, situation in which you hope that that it, it it turns out to be popular you know and i've had some of these small films in the past and i've also had big films that have not done well so uh you know i i just try to go with my gut i guess and, and just if i like it um that that's it because if you don't like something it's hard to sell something and i feel and that's my my uh, uh my personality i guess is uh the passion behind uh the film that i'm handling Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit about uh, One Cut of the Dead that became like an international phenomenon? So, yes, obviously, I was when I was talking about the distribution, over the years, things have changed. So, for example, if I were to initially have, uh, have acquired a film, it would be obviously the completely finished film. And I have very little wriggle room in terms of how that film gets out there before it gets released in the UK in terms of the way that it's marketed worldwide, what festivals it goes to, and all the other aspects. But now recently, I've, I've started to handle more of like the film, the whole film in general. So for the, the whole film's released worldwide. So if there's a film I like, which I want to distribute, if, it, for example, it doesn't go to film festivals properly, then I'll be in a bit of a trouble because there won't be much word of mouth around it. So these small films, like One Cut of the Dead is one example, they're... I've wanted to distribute it, but I thought, okay, well, let me just, um, uh, because it was a very small film, that let me talk to the director and the producer and, and get the, the, the whole entire worldwide rights for it. And I will bring the film to film festivals. I will, I will market the film and handle worldwide press. Then I'll sell the film to other territories and be able to control the whole entire, the whole entire chain of that film's life outside of Japan. So that was something I did with One Cut of the Dead and also with Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes as well. And with a few other films like that, um, you know, it's, it just uh, it, it allows me to, first of all, basically start promoting the film, you know, from its very beginning, because I know that, that my, my release will be out there at the end. And in that time, I can make it as big and big as possible. And therefore, when it's finally released by me, people will, will, will be very interested in it. Because a lot of the, you know, Japanese sales agents or producers or anybody, they're really poor with the international aspect of promoting their film. They can't, they're terrible about getting into film festivals. They've got this old fashioned mind that like the only film festivals in the world are like Cannes and Venice. And if it doesn't go there, it's not worth it. And they, they, they charge exorbitant fees for a film festival to play the film. They charge crazy amounts for distributors. And, you know, sometimes distributors are very important because they can also, they have their own press and, and marketing uh, machine which can really help get the word of mouth of that film out and if you don't properly carefully handle every aspect of of this film's uh, international circuit 
then it can die a film very easily. So I think that, it, you know, with one cut was something I really put so much, so much effort into it, getting what festivals will play it when and, and, uh, you know, what distributors would handle it and um, what po even the poster design and, and everything, every aspect of it. I mean, more than the producer of the film, to be honest. Um, I spent like two, 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 and two years working nonstop on that. Uh, and uh, unfortunately, for, unfo not, well, unfortunately for me, the producer in Japan was the person who made all, all, all the money from its uh, 30 million uh, mm -hmm. domestic box office. And I got none of that, uh, even though I spent uh, way, many more years, many more hours working on the, the film's promotion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, what are the most successful films commercially that you have released, and what were the biggest flops? Let's say. Well, Confessions. A lot of the, the Nakashima Tetsuya films are really, really popular. Um, especially Kamikaze Girls. Um, more than Memories of Matsuko. Uh, but Confessions was was a really, really big success because it played about 50 cinemas in the UK, and it did a very good box office as well. Um, it was sort of television obviously and um and for blu-ray and dvd sales are very strong uh, love exposure as well was a was another big uh, success one that continues to sell to this day at least um a, a certain you know number of, of dozens of copies every every uh, couple of weeks or so it's a very consistent seller and uh obviously one cut of the dead because uh, i had the worldwide rights for that as well so i could make uh, a little bit of money from from all the different uh, sales and now Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes is another one that's been quite popular. Um, films that have not been so popular, like that, Villain was a really big bomb. The, um, that, that was a bit of a bad timing because if I remember correctly, it, happened, it was supposed to release just during the, uh, when the riots in, in the, uh, happened in the UK about, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago, and uh, they burnt down like uh, the, the Sony warehouses, and there was a really, really bad riots um, around the time, and that obviously... Sort of killed the release, but um, that was a, I've lost a lot of, of money on that because I expected it to be a lot bigger because it I liked it a lot and I think it was had a quite quite of a, a chance of a, a big success. But I think um, you know maybe I watched that film too much with the mind of a Japanese or somebody who watches a lot of Japanese films and it's it's a lot more melodram melodramatic uh, than I think you know Western or especially English people like. And it, it didn't really click with me. But the, those the films, obviously, that, I've, that have been bigger have usually done worse for me. Like the, the films you'd, you'd expect to, to have a larger success, like the studio films, like that was a Toho film. And the tiny little films like One Cut of the Dead and uh, Beyond the Infinite Two Minutes and these sorts of small sort of quirky films who have always been um, best for me. And uh, that's why I, I should always uh, stick with these small films. Uh, it's just... It's less stress as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, how important do you think is the fact that you are in Japan? Because the rest of the companies that release Asian movies are not there. Are not just that I'm okay, please. Not, sorry, not not just that I'm, I'm in Japan, but also that I speak Japanese. And uh, you know, I think obviously when you're overseas, first of all, you don't see all these these small films, especially you know films like One Cut of the Dead. You know, I, I was able to to know that the director who's very just made only only short films before then and i knew that because i always go to japanese independent cinemas like proper small uh one screen 50 seat cinemas there's loads of them in japan i go there, there every week and i watch as many films as i can and i get uh connected to as many people as i can and therefore i've got my my ear on the ground more than more than anybody else in that respect i mean beyond the infinite two minutes played at like a 25 seat 
cinema or a 30 seat cinema and it's you know it's luckily because i was going to these sort of places i was able to find those sort of films where if i'd been in england i would have to wait for a sales agent to rip that film and then bring it to film festivals and maybe catch it but by that time everyone else would know about it so i have a obviously an advantage of of seeing these things and hearing about them uh much ahead of time also you know when it comes to making for example extra features you know i can um, film interviews with directors and audio commentaries and i can also subtitle them myself uh, because I speak, so I save so many costs um, be, be, because of the situation that I'm in now, you know, the costs of getting films early before they go to big sales agents and their prices go up. And obviously the costs of getting these films out there, uh, um, you know, for, on DVD or Blu-ray and all these other things. It's just, um, yeah, obviously it's, it's very advantageous uh, being, being here. Mm -hmm. Have you managed to get the citizenship or not yet? No, but I'm. I've been here for nearly ten years, and after ten years, you can get um, you can become a citizen. So I, I shall apply next year. And um, I mean, my wife's Japanese, and I've got my kid is is Japanese. So I don't think it'll be too hard. But but then again, Japanese aren't so welcoming to foreigners, especially ones like me who speak uh, their mind too much. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, a lot of people that live in Japan, they say like kind of. Like the Japanese never actually welcome you as their own. You may adapt or anything, but you are not one of them. Is that what you think also? Yes, I do think that. And I've, I've uh, also working, producing films in Japan. When I, for films like uh, Love and Other Cults and Low Life Love, they were completely independent productions. So, but they were done like that because I'd had so many bad uh, examples of working with Japanese companies. Um, you know, they all, they all want their films to be like international and, and get out there and have like Western people attached, but they don't actually want to hear what you say. And, um, you know, they, they, it's all from one side, they're, they're, they're all smiling. And then the other side, they're, they're, they're oh, that guy's a foreigner. Don't listen to him. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it, you know, if you're here for long enough, for, you do sort of see that. Um, but then again, you know, seeing that and understanding that allows you to also work around it and 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 those that's mainly talking about the the sort of um the structured situations so or big companies and and salary men as, as they say these people that robotic uh, uh suits that um make up all of japan's companies including film companies but then again like if you're talking this sort of independent japanese film scene it's it's um it's it's a lot more welcoming to to uh creative ideas and for different people and the, the opposite of of these sort of traditional japanese type uh salaryman mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and uh, can you tell me a bit about the movies you produced with seiji uchida how was that yeah so so i had done these um these uh these what they call the film committee films uh, uh in which japanese films are usually made even if they're independent films or smaller films all these like 20 different companies that like, come together to form what's called a film committee uh, in Japanese, Seisaku Inkai. And it's a real awful, it's, it's, I understand why, why it's done. What it does is it reduces the risk upon like a, one company to finance a whole film. And it, and it's sort of has loads of companies come together so that the risk is all, is all split up uh, onto each of them. Uh, but it's when you have like 30 different representatives of 30 different people like in a room like it just becomes chaotic uh, and uh, the problem with Japanese is they can't uh, they can't nobody can can they can can say anything they always have to go back to their office and ask their boss who asked their boss who asked their boss 
and you have the situation where it's 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 really in, insane but, but it takes like a month to do anything like just to change the color of a website takes about a month so these sort of situations drew drew me totally crazy and um at the same time as i just finished uh, these two film committee films i had been uh, i released uchida Eiji's uh, grateful dead which i really loved uh, a fantastic black comedy and he came to me and said you know i want to make a actually he wants i want to make a, an american like japanese girl doing karate in america type film and i said i'm totally like not interested i want to make like a really japanese film that like is very domestic and he said well i also have the, this idea of a sort of um a film about the japanese film industry and a sort of a shimokitazawa film he says which is a a sort of like saying like a Brooklyn type film, like a very sort of subculture crowd, uh, maybe hipster crowd uh, type film, but a film sort of making fun of that sort of people, uh, but very domestic. Nobody's going to see this, he told me. And I said, oh, great. That's the time, type of film that I want to help you with. So that was the beginning of Low Life Love. But in order to not have this film committee situation, we decided to do it just completely, like totally independent. In order to raise the money for that, I sold... Like I had been collecting records for about 20 years and um, I sold my, my record collection to raise money. And then I did crowdfunding in, uh, in um, both Japan and in, in overseas. And uh, it was a, a whole lot of work, but we managed to raise the money and we shot the film in, in, this, in this house as well as uh, like other locations that I was like, um, I actually was at another apartment at the time and I moved, I, I planned to move house halfway through the shoot so that we could use locations of my old apartment and my new apartment and uh, like really proper independent uh, way of, of making a film and just like a few, only like like seven or eight crew members and I was doing the making of and everything at the same time. So it was very proper indie, passionate spirit film and, uh, you know, Uchido and I became close with that and then we made another film after which was uh, Love and Other Cults. Mm -hmm. Okay, and but you are happy with the result, the effort it took, and the result. Are you happy with the production? I mean, uh, love, low life, love. I think uh, if you know, if I would look at it again, it probably could. I mean, could be could be shorter and a little more tight. It was, uh, you know, I think for, for 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 the fact that it was basically like a bunch of guys making a film like in their house with like really small amounts of money i thought it went it worked really well and i think um key is fantastic in the film uh, shibukawa kiyohiko is the lead he's a brilliant actor and i think managed to get that that cast because that cast is quite big name actors and managing to get that cast together and make this sort of very biting and and what today is very very um real almost documentary type film uh, looking at it at this current situation of japan and I, I, so I think it, it worked out really well. Um, you know, Love and Other Cults, we actually went double the budget and, and, and even bigger names. And I, I think, you know, that film initially was actually about two and a half hours long. And I edited it down to make a sort of 90 minute, uh, sort of more poppier version. But it, it, would, it had a lot of uh, stress around uh, the making it. But I'm still pleased uh, with it, especially with them. Um, Ito Saidi, who was the, the lead actress of that film, she was fantastic uh, performance. It was her first lead role, and now she's one of the biggest names in Japan. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy that we could make that small film because we couldn't make it today because she's so, she's so such a big name. But so I'm just yeah, and Uchida obviously, thanks to those two films, has now become uh, one of the biggest names in Japan. He's uh, won an Academy Award recently for for his film Midnight Swan. So I think those two films 
while they're not uh, super amazing films, I think that they're quite interesting, unique, and they also sort of have a lot of personality towards them and the personality of all the people involved with them sort of evolved. And uh, uh, we all went, you know, in, in our own ways that um, uh, turned into something a lot more interesting. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, since you mentioned that, how real low life love turned out to be, can you tell us a bit what happened with Sean Sono? What's your take well, on you know, I mean, you know, low life love was is 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 sort of it's it's a very you know I don't it's sort of like a documentary actually and uh, the thing is, is we didn't want to make it too too real I guess because it would have been too depressing to watch so we made it sort of a, a comedy um, you know sort of entertainment but at the same time it was very critical of the workshop and independent film scene that Uchida and I both saw on a daily basis. Um, you know, the, the Japan is very old fashioned and it's very, very, very behind the rest of the world. Um, you know, I think in terms of gender equality, it's like, you know, like 128 out of 140 mm -hmm. countries in the world or something like that. But, you know, for such an advanced, uh, uh, supposedly advanced uh, culture and, um, you know, the third biggest economy in the world, it's, it's obviously very, very behind the times. And, The way that the, the, the film industry is, especially the independent film industry, is, is very seedy. Um, it's very tough to, to survive and it's, there's no financial rewards. So I think because people get paid so poorly, you know, I think it sort of brings out, makes people quite bitter. And I think that there's obviously a lot of, um, of sexual harassment, a lot of power harassment uh, and You know, in the cases of of many directors, I think they, they take advantage of actresses uh, because they just maybe they don't feel that they've got anything else really going on because they're, they're also poorly paid. It's such an awful situation, but it's 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 really really awful um, to be honest. And uh, I'm surprised it took so long for the for me to to catch up. I didn't think it was actually because it's sort of they had a sort of Me Too movement started a little bit in Japan a few years ago, and it sort of died immediately. And I never thought that uh, it would come back again, uh, but but yes, Japan it takes it just takes 10 years for anything to happen, and uh, yes, Me Too has started, and Sion Sono is obviously one of the, the centerpiece uh, names of this. And to be very honest, um, I think Sion Sono has become one of the, the centerpieces because he's got a big name, not because he's as bad as any of the other people that, that are out there. I think there are a lot worse people. Um, out there and mainly around Shion Sono. So everyone around Shion Sono is very, very, very bad. And the problem with Sono is he exaggerates a lot when he talks. Um, he's always uh, sort of, yeah, I did this and this and this and this. He's a bit of like, like a bit like a child, to be honest. Um, but it, and I think that's what has got him into trouble. But the, so I, I, I think also at the same time that. He's 60, and I think every single Japanese man from the Showa generation who's, who's of that age is, 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 has done sexual harassment in the workplace uh, um, for many, many of, of the years because uh, that's just what Japan is. So, um, but obviously, Shion Sono is a big name, and he's, uh, he's been singled out. But um, there are a lot worse people that I hope uh, get, get caught up in this. And I think, if anything, you know... Um, You know, it's sort of a good thing, even if it, if it has to be somebody like Shion Sono, because it's it started the ball rolling on the on the Me Too movement here, and hopefully 
so many other bad people can get caught up in it and get the and finally they can change this this awful system they have here but um in terms of Sion Sona himself yeah i i don't think he's as bad as uh, what people are are making him out to be but at the same time i don't think he's uh, he's innocent either so um we will see we'll see what happens so so you were not surprised when you shared the news about him i guess i was you know yeah i'm not surprised because i think it, one main thing as i said is if you look at the from the eyes of today uh, in today's term at anybody in japan of a certain age then they all have all done done sexual harassment um you know it's just quite common here i mean unfortunately but yeah i i was surprised that other people weren't brought up and i was surprised actually there were some people connected to him that, that managed to get out of out of it very easily um when they've done when they've been a lot worse because sono drew a lot of the attention but i don't know i think i was a bit surprised but at the same time you know i i maybe i just expected other people to get uh get caught instead of instead of him but i i hope that um it, it worked out for him in the end uh you know he's, he's not uh, i don't feel from the from the 10 years that i've known him quite quite well i don't think that he's a he's a bad person but i don't think at the same time that in his 50 in his 60 years of uh, especially in, in his 30 years of of in this industry that he hasn't done something that could be considered a bad uh, um in, in today's eyes Mm-hmm. So, what about Hideo Sakaki? This is the. the ah, second... he, he's really bad. He's really bad. I mean, I, I'm surprised that um, that he only is not arrested. To be honest, um, from from from, he's a really really bad guy, and he's so bad that I knew um actually uh, managers of actresses who said that like they always had to be next to their actress at all times because they were scared that she might get attacked by him. I mean, like. And this is something. This is not new. This is something that that has been sort of common knowledge for for many years. So um, yeah, he's he's quite bad. I mean, uh, Kinosta Hoka. I'm. I think I'm not so so sure about him, but it's surprising because he's in Low Life Love, um, and he was one of the people that that got caught up in this Me Too movement. I mean, I, I don't know him so well, so I can't really comment. But um, like I said, I think. Uh, Many men in in the industry, especially of a certain age, uh, have have been uh, have done probably something wrong uh, mm-hmm. in in their time. Mm-hmm. And uh, truth be told, I think you are one of the very few, or even the only one, who are so vocal about these issues in the Japanese movie industry. Aren't you afraid what we will do to you working in that industry? I mean. No, because these issues right now in Japan are very hot topic. I think everybody's talking about them, to be honest. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, maybe I, I'm not defending Shion Sono, but maybe I'm trying to give a different different perspective because Shion Sono and I are quite close friends. So from all the time that I've known him, I've only seen these things and I've I've seen that he talks, he exaggerates a lot. And I think that's gotten him, in, him into trouble. And I also, but I know that he's had relationships with, with many actresses. I mean, in fact, You know, it's common knowledge that Mitsushima Hikari and him were dating for a long time. And then obviously his current wife uh, was an actress before. So, you know, but there's always that that great gray line of, you know, should a director uh, date an actress? But I don't think that you know, himself has never been sort of like a, how do, like a, he's not a rapist. I would never, never think that. But people like Sasaki Hideo, I do think, uh, mm-hmm. are, are rapists, to be honest. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, we're talking about being vocal about it. You know, maybe it's just there aren't many uh, Westerners who who know the this side of it i mean you know obviously we made low life love and we see this stuff all the time but um 
there's probably less people out there. You know, I think maybe the people like if they're, they're critics or, or um, you know, reporters, they know it from a different side as in they're, they're reading, uh, researching into it. But but from us, you know, we, we've unfortunately been in this uh, awful Japanese film industry. But I'm glad, you know, that people like Uchida Eiji, who is a very, very, um, very serious and very uh, sensitive person, you know, ha has... Has, we, we were able to make this film like Low Life Love because he's really anti, um, you know, that sort of uh, this sexual harassment and is really against uh, those bad directors. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's a fantastic person. Yeah, I actually also meant that you, were, you have been also vocal in the past about these committee films and how <laughs> international promotion works in Japan. I meant also in that aspect. Has anything um, of that caused problems for you? Yeah, that, that's got loads of problems for me, for sure. <laughs> like, yeah, going back to that sort of thing, it's like, you know, um, Westerners speaking out about this. You know, I think that, that film committee system works because, you know, everybody's... The, those people up in the in the committees are always doing well. I mean, they're screwing every every aspect of the actual filmmaking process and the filmmakers, and they're the ones always doing well. So they obviously don't want somebody to to mess up that system because, you know... You know, and it comes down to this sort of this whole uh, bringing it back to this sort of me too in this workshop situation is like, you know, Japanese actors and directors are so poorly paid and they're because of this sort of uh, um, film committee system and because of the way that films are made, you know, I think, uh, and also because of Japanese salary, man, they just don't understand any aspect of, of, of filmmaking or creativity or, or, or these sorts of things. So, yeah, it's a, it's a really awful, um, it's an awful uh situation that the, the film committee and but it won't change I, I don't think because there's no reason for it to change for them for the people that are making these these film committees mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but uh, i have to say that regardless of all these issues that you mentioned that you have like those predators around the industry the committee films and all the other problems japan is still one of the best countries in producing movies the quality is still pretty high don't you think no, I don't think. I mean, no. I think they're making a lot of films, but, you know, there's a reason why so few, you know, percentage-wise, the number of films that are making being made over every year, which is six, close to 600, how few of them are being, mm. are, are making it overseas. I mean, if they're any better, then they would do better overseas. And the only reason why the few, like uh, the Koreaders and the um, uh, Hamaguchi and the Fukada uh, um, Koji and these sorts of films are even making overseas because they're French films, actually. There's many, mostly made by French production companies with French producers who are a lot better at, um, at handling every process of every, every step of the film production uh, and making work, working with the director to make better scripts and then working better with him over the production, the editing process. I mean, in Japan, it's sort of like, the, the, yeah, the, if, if it's a very, very, very talented director and team, of which there aren't that many, I, I do believe, uh, then maybe they can make a film good on their own re regards. But the, the producers here are awful and the, the production system is awful. And the films are, you know, you, you're seeing a lot of the Japanese films that are making it overseas, which are, are the best of the best and they're few and far between. But I'm seeing all the films in every week that are out and they're all they're not very good i mean uh, to be honest so mm -hmm. of course there are a lot of com countries out there that are making bad films but the percentage of japanese films of, as a to of a total 
the, the, the good ones are very small percent. So mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, maybe you can only see like 10 films a year from, I don't know, Philippines or something like that. But that's because they're only making a, a small amount. But you're seeing like, what, 10 Japanese films out of like 600. So what about the rest of them, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, what about the anime industry? How come you have not been involved with that at all? Is it a whole other thing? Anime? I just don't like anime. <laughs> Oh, I mean, okay. you know, of course, that that is when it comes to, um, you know, the shining light of, of Japanese uh, film industry, uh, then obviously anime and manga are the things because they're the ones that have the most money behind them. And they're obviously the ones that are, are most successful worldwide because obviously they also have the money. Um, you know, there's a lot of money in that industry, including government money as well. And when it comes to things like Cool Japan and all these Japanese government uh Uh, agencies that are that are promoting Japanese uh, culture overseas, it comes down to anime and manga and not uh, live action cinema. But uh, personally, I don't like anime and I don't like, I've tried to read a, a manga once and I, and I gave up. Uh, I, I, I just, you know, I'm just not interested in that whatsoever. So in that case, you know, in fact, the only, I did release uh, anime films of the Tezuka Osamu, the anime Rama, but uh, I released them because they're a sort of quite an oddity and they're not popular despite the fact that, you know, they should be. And, and those are sort of, You know, as as you know, films or as uh, parts of culture. You know, I like that um, in the same way that I like something like Stardust Brothers. You know, like this cult, cult, uh, cult cinema. Mm-hmm. And uh, how did uh, the rise of the streaming services affect you? Yeah, I mean, it, you know, it's 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 complicated because you know it devalues an individual movie in a sense. You know. If, if a customer has paying seven pounds a month or something or ten dollars or whatever for Netflix and they get in essence unlimited, no, obviously it's a limit, but movies, thousands of movies to watch for that, that one fee. And when it comes down to an individual, a singular film, if you were to release it uh, on DVD or Blu-ray or T-Vod, it's like, well, I could have 700 films for the price of your one film. And it really makes it hard for a films to keep its value. Of course, you have piracy and everything on top of that. But I think, you know, that sort of subscription thing, so many people are subscribing to so many things and they have so many things to watch as well. And, and they're paying for their monthly subscription fee and not even catching up on, on a, a fraction of the films that are on these services. So why should they watch like one separate film that is going to be a separate cost to them? So it, it does make it very hard to um, release singular films in that respect, and especially films that don't, people don't know about. You know, it used to be that you could ha- maybe have more of a chance of getting a film that nobody knew about because, like I said, people weren't having these subscriptions or these uh, Netflixes and such, and they would take a chance on a smaller film they didn't know about as much. And nowadays, you sort of have to release a film that everybody knows about in like a special collector's edition or nobody's going to want to buy the Blu-ray. And for, for T-Vod, as in tr- uh, rental, uh, online rental for one, one time, um, people don't want to spend like three pounds to rent something because for them, that's half the cost of a subscription to thousands of films. So it does make it very hard to especially um, ha- handle smaller films. Um, Or, or unknown films when you have to sort of, and I guess that's why so many companies like Arrow and all these other um, even niche uh, distributors that are focusing on, on a smaller, more of a of, uh, or sort of a cult or art house audience are releasing like films that have been released before. I mean, uh, 
you know, all the Arrow collectors' editions of of whatever Giallo or something like that, or or, uh, mm. or even a Japanese cinema, they're all films that everybody knows about. I mean, uh, they're not like releasing films that, that nobody knows about because uh, nobody want, wants to take a chance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, has Brexit affected your sales? I think you're shipping from the UK most of the time, right? Yeah, I mean, it has also because it's made it a, a pain for, for um, many, especially smaller um, retailers, like for somebody like the Terracotta store or something, to, to, to ship to places like Europe because you have all these extra costs and all these extra VAT charges. And then the customer on the other side may have to pay extra charges, which puts them off from buying the release. And, uh, you know, it has increased a lot of costs. Um, it's been, uh, yeah, also, you know, Ever since the, the, the Sony warehouse um, that used to manufacture a lot of Blu-rays in England burned down during, during the riots that I mentioned before, um, you know, we, we're obviously having to, to um, manufacture this in Europe and that will increase all these extra other costs to do with Brexit and customs. And it's just a bit of, I, well, Brexit has, has helped nobody. So I think if you ask anybody how to, if they've been affected negatively by Brexit, I'm sure they'll give you a... Uh, the same same answers. It's a stupid, uh, idiotic, uh, racist sort of yeah, racist or, uh, situation, and uh, yeah, it's good. It's good over everyone. Um, it's an awful situation. Mm-hmm. And I guess the last question: What about the future? Third window, you? Yeah, I'm always yeah, always sort of what should I do? And and uh, this year and last year, I, I think I felt quite a, on a roll i was releasing a lot of titles and i was feeling quite well and then you know i'm not sure actually what to do for the next i've got some some stuff in the pipeline um but always trying to find new ways of getting around um working with sales agents so trying to find small films like one cut of the dead or trying to get films directly from producers and, and remaster films but it's it's so much uh, red tape and dealing with if any company comes in a japanese company comes in it just makes me piss stressed and pissed off and then almost want to quit what I'm doing. So then I get a bit down and I go, you know, what to do next. And, uh, you know, it's, the market is becoming more and more complicated every year and more and more stressful. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what to do. So you've caught me in a time when I'm, yeah, I'm a bit, I'm a bit down to be honest, but uh, I've got some ideas about uh, on some projects in the pipeline uh, and hopefully they work out or, or, If they don't, I, I don't know what to do. So uh, I'm sort of living on a bit of a edge right now. But ho- hopefully it can keep on uh, going for at least another few years. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you plan to produce more or you're done with produce? Well, Barbara was a really uh, stressful experience for me and uh, lost a lot of money. And uh, yeah, I mean, that was obviously, unfortunately, a film committee, but it wasn't a film committee film when we started it. And that was the problem. Uh, It became a film committee film and therefore it did it caused a it became very stressful at the end so maybe if some other small tiny little small film project comes up and i can do we can do something like like a low life love and just sort of shoot it all together and in a house and uh you know maybe that, that would be something i might be interested in but um you know i i had a kid last year and i think uh you know once you have a kid i think you can't be so gung-ho uh with, with things especially you know both ec- economically and also you know the time because you know low life love during that time i was just not sleeping at all and uh 
and working just flat out day and night, day and night, day and night for like, like years. And, uh, you know, I can't do that now because uh, I've got a crying baby in, in the next room and you know, it's, <laughs> I, I, I need to sleep when I can. So uh, I think all those things maybe uh, make you make me think uh, a little more uh, about not, not doing sort of crazy projects. As much as crazy projects can be quite rewarding, I think uh, you have to be a little more calm uh, nowadays. <laughs> Uh, maybe you could find a way to include the baby in your next movie. And maybe that could. <laughs> well, where does Shinichiro put put his kid in, in One Cut of the Dead? And uh, he, he always has some cute little YouTube videos of his kid making movies. Uh, actually, they live uh, just just around the corner from me, so I run into them about three times a week when he takes his oh, kid okay. to the daycare. So, I bit uh, off the topic, uh, but uh, but um. Yeah, maybe. But right now he's one, so I think uh, it's, it's a bit too chaotic. Uh. Okay, okay, yeah, I understand. All right, I guess, I guess that's it, Adam. Thank you very much for your time. Ah, oh, thank you for having me. Okay, this is Asian Movie Pulse Interviews. I'm Panos Kodzathanasis, and see you soon. Have a nice day. Bye.